This episode contains mentions of suicide and abuse and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Macy is my hero, my literal hero. I have seen this brave, strong woman overcome what most people cannot. Not only being a single mother, constant major health problems, and torment from abuse, she is still going strong. Chasing her dreams and loving deeply with her massive heart. She overcomes anything that life throws at her and she does it gracefully, lovingly, without complaint. In the thick of her suffering, she decided to be brave enough to create a podcast that told her story so that others could heal and find a place for support and not judgment. I admire her bravery and strength as she shares with the world that you can overcome any amount of pain. This is Macy's story. Before we get into your story, I want everyone out there that is listening to know why you wanted to start this whole entire podcast. Why did you approach me and what was driven in you to start this whole podcast? Okay, that is, that's such a complex question. Um, The main reason I wanted to do this is because I... I wanted to heal, and I thought it would be beneficial to bring as many people with me as I could because there's a lot of information out there, but it's all about blame. There's not a lot of information out there about how to actually address what's underneath the bandages. And I want to teach myself how to heal a trauma, and I want other people to learn how to heal their trauma. I can't diagnose anyone, but in my experience with years of therapy and as much research as I could get my hands on, there does have to be criteria that's met in the DSM to be able to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And this, the most devastating part of that is that That is the one thing in people that they will not seek help for because narcissists don't believe there's a problem. So why would they go to get diagnosed? The manifestations of these symptoms are lifelong normally. I think people who have truly been through a narcissistic relationship, the real in-depth level of manipulation and trauma that's done to them, that is how they can differentiate between having been with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder and someone who's showing traits of narcissism. I have been a loner almost the entirety of my life. I, I didn't have friends growing up. I was kind of the black sheep in my family. So there was already ingrained in me a deep sense of loneliness and wanting to be loved. Since I was a little girl, the one thing that I wanted more than anything in this world was to find the love of my life. And as such, I was attracted to whoever gave me love and attention. I had been previously married. That marriage was very tumultuous and very difficult. And it did 
have many traumatic events happen within it, and it ended in divorce. After the marriage ended, I spent years in therapy. I spent years in bed, sleeping. And I later learned that I was actually recovering. I, I thought that I was extremely chronically ill and maybe dying. And I recently learned that my body had been in fight or flight mode for so many years that it just was recovering. And it, it took three years in bed to recover. And I didn't date a lot after that. After a, a narcissistic, abusive relationship, you are not the same person. You do not come out of it the same as you go in. And that is because you have been shown a side of abuse that is so manipulative in nature that you, you do question your own reality. You question your own sanity and you question everyone around you. It takes sometimes a lifetime to recover. After my marriage, I, I didn't go out, I didn't date. I was afraid of people. And I was very hesitant to ever be completely trustworthy and vulnerable with anyone ever again. I don't even remember for sure how I met my ex-boyfriend. I know that it was online. I don't know who found who. I was so ecstatic that someone that handsome and fun looking and successful and brave would want any interest in me because I had put on weight. My self-esteem was below zero. I didn't get hit on a lot. And he showed me attention right away. He actually told me on the second day that we spoke that he was in love with me. And looking back now, knowing what I know, I, it would have been a red flag. I think that it's important to educate oneself on the signs of narcissistic abuse because it's so prevalent. And during, during the time you meet someone with a personality disorder, there are many red flags that come up. If they meet someone who is vulnerable and ready to feel love and give love, it's very easy to fall in that trap. And it's very easy to ignore the red flags, just simply to be loved. And in this case, that's what I did. It was a, a whirlwind of a romance, very, very quick. What still haunts me to this day is that we had things in common that were unspoken. Things, we had things in common that wouldn't necessarily be easy for someone with narcissistic personality to mirror. Things that I had never spoken to him about and he, he, that were also true about him. And that confused me because I had known there were red flags, but I also felt like I had searched for this person my entire life. It was very emotionally upsetting. I think the other reason it hurt so bad is that I had already gone through the training. I had already gone through therapy. I had already read books. I had already sought help. I had already prayed. I had already meditated. I had already done everything a person can do to heal from PTSD or narcissistic abuse recovery. And I still fell into a very toxic cycle of a relationship. And that is because I didn't heal what needed to be healed.
I healed my knowledge in narcissism. I healed my acceptance of being alone. What I didn't heal is my willing to just not be loved by anyone, to be picky about who I give my love to and who, get, who I allow to love me fully. I knew that there were red flags from the, the very moment that I met him in person. And that is because the person that I fell in love with over the phone, because we talked on the phone for quite a long time before we met in person, was the most wonderful person in the world to me. They were my everything. They were the one thing I looked forward to in the day. They were my heart and soul. The person that I met in person, his mannerisms didn't match his language. It felt like the t a tiger got its prey and was bored now, is what it felt like. He, he kind of like let go of my hand really harshly and he called me a bitch. And I asked him why and he said it was because I wouldn't snuggle with him. And it freaked me out because we had, we had not been in person for very long. I was already so entangled emotionally with him that I didn't see it the way someone from an outside perspective would see it. I was deeply, madly in love. I, I wanted to marry them. I wanted to spend my life with them. I didn't think if my friend told me this happened to them on a first or second date, I would immediately tell them to break up with them. I didn't think that. I thought maybe they were in a bad mood. Maybe they're angry at me. Maybe it's because they're disappointed because I, I don't think I'm that attractive. There, there were a lot of things that I thought maybe it could have been, and I made excuses for his behavior. As, as time went on, things progressively got worse physically in nature. And that's when I started to realize perhaps I was going through a cycle of some type of, of abuse. I did things that I would have done for a husband. I knew probably a few months in that I needed to leave. And it was a really, really tough war between my heart and my head because there had been so many instances of terrifying things that had happened. And I wanted, I wanted to change him. I wanted him to stay. I wanted to marry him. I wanted to make it work. And that's what my heart wanted. And my head knew that I couldn't marry someone and bring this situation around my children. I couldn't force someone to love me on a level that I loved them. I couldn't make them see what they were doing in my eyes. There were traumatic experiences where after they left my house, I, I did have to call the police. I was, I was terrified. I, I, would spend, I would be in my daughter's room with a knife in my hand, with the door locked, with my phone ready to call 911. I think the worst, I, I guess, when I look back at this relationship, the most hurtful thing was, and I think this, this is probably true in a lot of abusive relationships, is that they are very good at finding the things in you that will hurt you the worst. And those are the exact weapons that will be used against you. In my case, this person knew that I was insecure about my weight. They knew that I had been through cancer. There was one night that I spent in a hospital having to do with a medical incident which had to do with them. And when I got back from the hospital, they were there at my house. And I, I was glad, I was actually really glad to see them because I thought they would embrace me in love. But 
they were angry at me. I, ha- I had just gotten home from a very devastating, horrific hospital incident. And when I got home, they spent the night angry at me. And the next morning, I, I cried myself. I-, I cried all night. I cried and I cried. And I wanted them to be there with me through it. The next morning, they, I guess, I don't know what it was, but they went and got a bucket of water and poured it on me and called me a bitch again. I was afraid. I, I was afraid and, and I was humiliated because if you can imagine spending a night with someone that you love more than anyone in the world, that, that you're not only do you love and respect as a person, but you're, you're in love with them and you trust them with everything, and you were already in physical pain from a hospital visit, and their response was to pour water on you and call you a bitch. And, and I got under the blankets, and I cried, and I was hoping they would leave, and I thought they did. And then all of a sudden, I felt freezing cold water being poured onto the blanket. So I was soaked. The blanket that I was using as a protection shield, that was now soaked. And they just blamed me. They blamed me, and they yelled at me, and it was... It was every emotion that a person could feel because it was shame, it was embarrassment, it was guilt, it was wanting to be loved desperately, it was not understanding why they hated you so badly, it was loneliness, it was second guessing the entire relationship, all the money, all the time, all the efforts I had put into this person. And I had given them everything. I had literally given them like thousands of dollars. I had, I offered to buy them a car. I, I literally just wanted to give them the world and share my world with them. And that, and I think that even to this day, that's what hurts the most is that I just wanted to love them and give them the world. And I feel like even if there are people that don't like me or even if there's a side of me that's not very lovable, I feel like I didn't deserve that moment. Like that moment really hurt. That moment hurt. There were worse things that were done over the course of the relationship he became more more emotionally abusive more verbally abusive and and more distant I would be blocked for days on end I would cry and cry and cry there were many many nights where he told me that he was going to kill himself or that or actually one time he told me he did die and that it was his sister on the phone and I was on the phone from like 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. with 911. Just, I was sobbing, just begging the ambulance to find him. I literally was sobbing. I was so afraid that he had died. And the idea of him not being here was the most excruciating pain I can describe to you because I thought that I had found my other half. It, it was like a half of me was suddenly, drastically, and inexplicably torn from my soul and body and thrown into the universe never to be seen again in the abuse cycle there's something called narcissistic trauma bonding and it's where they are very good at setting you into an attachment level that is so ingrained in cement that they literally could abuse you to the deepest degree and they know you will not leave and you prove to them 
relentlessly that you will not leave because you always return. And you return for the want of the love that you saw in the beginning. And in my case, that for sure to me was the love of my life. So I would have done or gone through any level of abuse to have that back. It never came back after that first date, but I, but I tried desperately. I think my breaking point in accepting that, it, that, that this was not the love of my life, which it took me a very long time. It took me long after we had broken up. It took me filing for protective orders. It took me, it took me a long time to realize and accept that this was not okay, that this was abuse, that it was okay to say that it was abuse and to call it what it was. I was told I was the crazy one. I was told I was the abusive one. I was told I was the user. But how could I have been the user if he has never given me anything? How could I be the abusive one if my response to his, his voicemails threatening my life were just to tell him to calm down or offer him rehab? So we had been broken up for a long time and he was always the first to email or text me either to yell at me and ask me for money or to make me feel bad I still every time he reached out wanted to believe that I could have the person that I fell in love with back finally after after I realized that I was in the abuse cycle I hit a depression that was so severe. It was so it was so dark. It was so dis- despicable in nature that I, I planned my own suicide. I planned to go to a hotel. I made videos for my kids. I wrote letters to the people I loved. It wasn't in a selfish way, and it wasn't necessarily thinking these people would be better off without me. It was that my soul's pain was so excruciating it literally manifested into my physical body my physical body hurt daily every minute of every day I, I it was such excruciating pain I just didn't want to live in that level of pain anymore and the pain stemmed from wanting to be with someone who didn't exist and that was the first time I reached out to him for the first time and I told him that I was done. And his response was that he was going to the gym and to hang in there. That is when I really knew, that, that is when I realized I was for sure out of love with him, that I had broken the trauma bond, that he never loved me, and that everything that he, had, had happened is not something a man would do to a woman they're in love with or a woman would ever do to a man that she was in love with, ever. If there are people out there who have been in that level of pain, what I think is important on this episode for them to hear is this. There are people who will lie to you about who they really are and then tell you that you have trust issues. There are people who will raise their children with absolute abuse, absolute manipulation, and they will wreak havoc on their self-esteem. There are people in this world who are in our lives pushing us to our 
brink, pushing us to, like me, death. Emotionally, psychologically, and physically. If there is some type of contract for our lives, if there is purpose in life, and if those are the people who can push us the farthest to learn, then wouldn't those people have been our best friends before this life? They would have had to sign up for something so mountainous and so enormous to help us grow that I almost feel gratitude to this person, but not in the sense that there is any excuse for his behavior and not in the sense that I will ever allow that into my life again, but in the sense that everything is okay. Everything is on track. Everything in our lives is brought and designed to give us an opportunity to decide if we would like to heal, to decide if we would like to expand, to decide what to do with it. I know there are people that feel trapped. I know there are people who feel alone. I know there are people who feel afraid. I know that there are people who are suicidal. I know that there are people who cannot find help. They have no one to talk to. They are scared. And the way out is not going to be anger, disgust, hurt, or revenge against their abuser. The only way out is to realize their power within, to realize that their life is perfect for them, that their lessons are okay, and that they have more power than they can ever imagine and more strength and courage than anyone else on this earth because abuse is something that we don't do to ourselves. It's, it comes upon us. And healing, I believe, comes from realizing and recognizing your power. Instead of running from the fear, instead of running from the situation, if you already have to be in it, run full speed ahead into the fear, into the situation. Realize that you can do it even though you're afraid, especially if you're afraid. You can show yourself it can be done and it will be done. People have done it. They've done it without resources or help. I just want people to know that it's going to be okay. It's, it is. Those who are born with parents having a cluster B personality are going to have a very hard time recognizing the signs because they lived their entire life with the abuse and trauma. And they likely won't recognize that they need healing until they're either out of the home or they go into a, a public school system or some way publicly that they realize what's going on at home is not normal. When those signs start to manifest to them, they definitely need to follow their heart and their intuition. They need to never try to do what I did. Don't make excuses for abuse. Don't try to justify. Don't try to diminish. You need to be able to recognize it and label it for what it is because that will be the first way you can climb out. And if you are and this is so important for me to explain to kids that are trapped in this hole because I know minors have written to us. They've emailed us and explained that their parents are, they can't leave, they can't emancipate themselves. 
narcissism's tricky because on the outside, they look very, very charming. They will charm your pants off and tell you and be everything you want to see and hear. So to a school district or to a f- other family members, they might look like the ideal parents. They may look like the ideal family from the outside. And behind closed doors, it is pure chaos and trauma. Chaos and trauma can be recognized in the body if they are unable to recognize the signs. Chaos and trauma can be recognized by getting rid of the details of their story, sitting with the feeling that comes from the story. And if the feeling is a bad feeling, they know they're being abused and traumatized. And that is when they need to make a plan for healing, when they are able to move out of the house and even look for resources now. The other group of people, those who were not necessarily raised that way, but are vulnerable, like me, I feel that I was easy prey to abuse because all I wanted was to give my heart and everything I had. I think the best thing for people to do is people that feel like they cannot get out or people that have just met someone and they're looking for the signs, the best thing for them to do is to sit with a list of those traits that to them are the ideal situation, whether it be romantically, professionally, familiar in a family. If they can look at a piece of paper with traits that are at least normal or are good in nature and they can compare them to what's happening to them, they can see on paper that it is abuse. Follow your intuition more than your heart. And in any other situation, I wouldn't say that, but trauma bonding feels like love. It's not love, but it feels like your fairy tale you waited your whole life for that came true. If there are red flags early on in dating that don't match what's on the paper of your ideal traits, leave right away. Even if it's painful, go ahead and go. It's much more painful to stay 30 years than it is to leave and It will be painful to leave, but the healing process has now begun, and there's hope. In your honest opinion, with all the experience you've had, do you believe that narcissists can actually change? Here is part two of Macy's story. I believe that the way the world stands now in literature, psychology, and social norms, it is very, very difficult because abuse is so very accepted. I know that it's possible because there are people out there who are doing it. They are, to me, literal heroes. They are some of the most inspirational people that you can find on this earth, and the reason why is because sitting with yourself, taking accountability for what you've done, accepting it for what it was, realizing that you did that to another person is so very courageous. Even people who don't have narcissistic personality disorder have a hard time with accountability. And because narcissists suffer from all kinds of things medically there have been signs of white matter abrasion they're just they have been so traumatized in their life that that's all they know for someone to be able to sit with all that 
and still take accountability and decide that they want to become a better person and seek to make amends, that is a hero. That is someone who it takes a tremendous amount of courage to look in a mirror like that. And so I, I do think it's possible. I think it's difficult. So I recently spoke with Sam Vaknin, who is a world-renowned author on narcissistic personality disorder. Sam yeah, I'm all, I'm all yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I can't thank you thank enough. You. It's such an honor to have you on the show. You actually coined the term narcissistic abuse as well as basically the original language of narcissism itself. First of all, a, a bit of a historical context. The sociologist Campbell said that we, we have transitioned from the age of dignity um, and reputation to the age of victimhood. We tend to self-define via various dimensions of victimhood. Victimhood became a proxy for identity politics. So today, when you try to make sense of your life, when you try to make sense of your society, environment, historical processes, when you try to predict the future, when you try to gain a modicum of certainty and determinacy and stability and safety, a sense of safety, the most handy metaphor is victimhood. So you would ask yourself, who has been victimizing me? Surely everything bad that's happening in my life is not my fault. It must be someone else's fault. So in this sense, victimhood is actually an extension of narcissism. It's a it's an alloplastic defense. A defense is a way to falsify reality so that you can so to render it more palatable, more acceptable, so that you can survive in reality by falsifying it, by lying to yourself, by self-deceiving. Autoplastic defenses is, is tending to blame ourselves for everything that's gone awry or wrong. You know, it's my fault. I should have behaved differently. I should have done things differently. I, you know. And alloplastic defense is a tendency to blame others for every mishap, every misfortune, every defeat and every failure. It's never your fault. You're never guilty. You're never to blame. You have had no contribution to the situation, to the adverse circumstances in which you find yourself. It's all 110% other people's fault. The cluster B victimhood movement is no exception. People define themselves as victims of cluster B personalities. And it's what we call um, hermeneutic device. In other words, um, the kind of thing that helps you make sense of reality and imbue it with meaning. And so there's this new religion of, I'm a victim of a narcissist. I'm a victim of a psychopath. I'm a bigger, vi I'm bigger victim than you are. No, I'm a big, bigger victim than you are. My abuser has been the worst. If you don't know what you're talking about, my abuser has been the worst. And there's this ridiculous, vainglorious competition of, you know, who's been more victimized and whose abuser has been more minacious and monstrous and, and so on and so forth. And it's really bad out there. It's bad out there because this is a debasement of the coinage of language. It's a corruption of language. When we corrupt language, we corrupt our ability to act in the environment and on the environment efficiently. Language and self-efficacy are interlinked 
if your language does not reflect reality properly, if it falsifies your, the information about your environment, then you're likely to make bad decisions, wrong choices, and pay a very heavy price. So we are corrupting language. We're labeling, we are slapping the label of narcissist on everyone we disagree with or don't like. And we are casting ourselves as victims when actually what has happened is that we have been victimized. Now imagine that you have been mugged. You're on a foreign trip and you've been mugged in a dark alley. I don't know what you might be doing in a dark alley, but okay, you were there and you have been mugged. Now you're not going to define the rest of your life as the victim of a mug of a mugging. You're not going to say it, people ask you who, who are you. You're not going to say I'm a victim of a mugging. No one is the victim of a narcissist. There's no such thing. But when you are victimized by a narcissist, you are going to say I'm the victim of a narcissist. It became an identity. There are, however, people who have been victimized by narcissists. So this is the first thing to, to disentangle an event or a series of events or a period in your life from who you are. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. Number two, it takes two to tango and in Argentina, even more than two. It's never 100% someone else's fault and 0% your contribution. That is not true. This division into angels and demons, all good and all bad, this has a name in clinical psychology. It's called splitting. It's an infantile defense mechanism, which is very typical of narcissists and borderlines, by the way. So victims have adopted this narcissistic defense mechanism. And now victims are splitting narcissists. They're saying the narcissist is all bad. And by contradistinction, I must be all good. All, 100%, not 99, 100 I have done nothing to deserve this. I have contributed nothing to my predicament. I, it is a force of nature that befell upon me. I have been the victim of a natural disaster. I'm a magnet. What can a magnet do? A magnet is a magnet. I'm a magnet. I attract this kind of people. You know, I am empathic and compassionate and more generally amazing. And that's why I keep attracting such people to me. It's a form of self-aggrandizement and a falsification of what had really happened. And what had really happened is your mate selection sucks. You don't know how to select mates. You have childhood wounds that resonated with your abuser and allowed your abuser an axis of entry into your life and mind and soul. So you're vulnerable, you're broken, you're damaged. You need to fix yourself, you need to heal yourself. Thereafter, you made a series of conscious, premeditated decisions to remain inside an abusive relationship, even though you had already become aware that you are being abused, etc., etc. You are responsible. You should be held accountable for what had happened, exactly like the abuser. You had contributed to it. You had made it. You made it happen. Now, that is not victim blaming or blame shifting or whatever you want to call it. A victim is a victim and an abuser is an abuser. And there is no, there's no moral middle ground. 
there's not like a, a gray area. No, an abuser is, abuse is irredeemable, unacceptable, unjustifiable behavior, period, misbehavior, misconduct. And a victim is a victim. But the circumstances, the synergy between abuser and victim, that is a common enterprise. It's a joint venture. It's an undertaking by two. In narcissism, this is known as the shared fantasy. It's known as a shared fantasy because it is shared. So this is the first step to healing. Self-acceptance, actually. Because when the victim says, I had nothing to do with it, it's not my fault. What she's actually saying is, I am not accepting myself as I am. This is self-rejection. This is a diminishment of self-awareness. This is self-deception. In short, that's an abusive thing to do. The victim abuses herself by denying her involvement, her agency, the power she has had throughout the process and never used. By doing all this, she is perpetrating abuse and perpetuating the abuse. And so these are the first steps. And then there are a series of other steps in the healing processes. I just wanted to mention um, cognitive behavioral therapies. So self-recognition in cognitive behavioral therapy when it comes to both the victim and the narcissist is to me very self-accountable and it's and it's admirable but it's also hard to recognize your own actions in order to press down that path and i'm wondering how would one go about their own accountability factors i feel like trauma bonding or i feel like the charming aspect early on in a cluster B personality relationship is intoxicating and it's it's very easy to go down that rabbit hole in a want of love, in a want of, of a relationship and it ties into codependency. But I think that it's hard to step outside of oneself in order to recognize that, that, that there's a problem that lies within. And I'm wondering what your personal recommendation on an approach for that would be. How, how does someone like, quote unquote, wake up to the fact that they are accountable or that their power lies from within? Well, bad things happen. When bad things happen, you, you're involved. You have contributed. That's a, there's no exception to this rule. When bad things happen to you, you somehow, somehow had contributed to your downfall. So this is, this is the warning sign. Bad things keep happening to you, especially if they are similar, similar in nature. This is known as repetition compulsion in psychology. If they're similar in nature, you are either doing something wrong or something is wrong with you. In both cases, you're right. I think this cannot be done um, ind independently, autonomously, alone. You know, you would need help and you would need professional help to do this. We all are constitutionally unable to see ourselves as we are. This is the meaning of defense mechanisms. We all have psychological defense mechanisms whose role is to prevent us from coming face to face with ourselves. Because the truth of ourselves is, in the vast majority of cases, intolerable and unbearable. It becomes a problem when we lose touch with reality. 
when the extent of the defenses is such that we bid farewell to reality and we enter the realm of fantasy. Fantasy itself, by the way, is clinically a defense mechanism. And then what happens is, because we are no longer in touch with reality, again, the clinical term is impaired reality testing. When we are no longer uh, in touch with reality, then we make decisions which are counterproductive, self-defeating, self-handicapping, and even self-trashing or self-destructive. Why does this why does this happen? Why do we devolve into self-destructiveness and self-defeat the minute we lose touch with, with reality? Possibly because that's the only way to wake up. I think it's very frightening to lose reality. And so we need to wake up. It's like pinching yourself while you're having a nightmare, you know, hurting yourself while you're having a nightmare so that you, you're, cap you're capable of waking up from the nightmare. And so you need help to see yourself as you are and then to do something about it because we are built as human beings, even healthy human beings. We are built to be detached from reality to some extent. And in the case of victims of cluster B personality disorders, these are usually people who are delighted to give up on reality. Reality to them is unbearable. They're lonely, they're bored, they're anxious, they're depressed, they, are, they abuse substances, they're hopeless, they're sad. Something is wrong, which renders reality so unacceptable and so burdensome, so unbearable, that any substitute to reality is considered better. So here comes the dark personality or the cluster B personality and says, I have a full-fledged alternative to reality. It's a virtual reality. It's, an, it's, uh, it's my reality. It's fantasy. It's Disneyland. And all you have to do is play by my rules. Assume a role that I will assign to you. And then do your thing. Fulfill your function. And then in return, I'm going to provide you with a dual fantasy. One, I'm going to act as your mother. I'm going to love you unconditionally. I'm, I'm going to idealize you. And I'm going to allow you to see yourself in the idealized version. And therefore, to fall in love with yourself. I'm going to allow you for the first time in your life to actually love yourself. Because you will see yourself or you will have seen yourself through my gaze. And in my gaze, you're going to be ideal. You're going to be perfect. You're going to be drop-dead gorgeous. You're going to be super intelligent. You're going to be the most amazing woman that has ever lived. Through my gaze. And only through my gaze. I have a monopoly of this. You want to feel that way? You want to feel that you there's never been a woman like you before? You need to do the, this through my gaze. You become the, the narcissist or the mother and the narcissist becomes your mother and you love each other unconditionally. Love. It's not love, but it's, it's a simulation of love. And then you're in the womb. You're back in the womb. You're back in your early childhood. It's a second chance at an early childhood. 
In the vast majority of cases of partners of cluster B personality disorders, their childhood has gone awry. It was not a good childhood. It was an unhappy childhood. The mother probably was what is called in psychoanalytic literature, a dead mother, in, in the sense that she was emotionally absent, depressed, selfish, instrumentalizing, parentifying, wrong mother, bad, not good enough mother. So here comes a narcissist and he tells you, listen, I'm going to give you a second childhood. And in order for you to experience this childhood, you need to infantilize yourself. Because how can you be a child again if you're an adult? So you need to shed your all your adulthood devices and costumes, and you need to become a child again. And then I will be your mother and you will have a second childhood. This time, a perfect childhood, simply a perfect childhood. And you will see yourself through my eyes and it will be the most amazing sight to behold. And you will fall in love with yourself and everything will be, will be great. And you will not, you'll not need to be in touch with reality anymore. I will take care of reality for you. I will be your reality testing. I'll protect you, I'll shield you, I will provide for you. Will... You have to agree to the mediation and interface of the narcissist. You agree to reside in his fantasy and never to exit. And you agree to play a role. It's a role play. It's And that's a deal. It sounds horrible. It sounds a little like prison. But it doesn't feel like prison. It feels like childhood. That's what it feels like. The idealization phase is part of a love bombing strategy. It is intended to capture you and captivate you. It's intended to give you everything I've just described, the feeling that you're a child again, that you have a new mother, that you're accepted unconditionally and loved unconditionally, that you are perfect, almost godlike, and, and so on and so forth. And so this is captivating, it's intoxicating. In short, it's addictive and you become addicted. And this is the idealization phase. In the idealization phase, the narcissist creates a snapshot of you and internalizes it. He takes a photograph of you, mental photograph. And then he internalizes this photograph, a process known as introjection, identification introjection. And so then he has this photograph of you in his mind and he photoshops it. The photoshopping is the idealization. From that moment on, the narcissist continues to interact with the snapshot, not with you, never with you. Narcissists are incapable of interacting with external objects. They convert external objects into internal objects and then they continue the interaction with the internal object only, exclusively, never with you. Now, this creates a problem. The internal object is usually, not always, but usually static and idealized. And human beings are neither. They're not static, they're dynamic. And they're not ideal, they're very far from ideal. And this creates severe discrepancies between the idealized snapshot in the narcissist's mind, the introject, the internal object, and you as his intimate partner. There is a divergence. There's contradiction. Sometimes you're independent, autonomous, agentic, make your own decisions, have your own friends, go on trips, disobey the narcissist, criticize him, disagree with him. All this challenges the internal object. 
And so this creates a lot of frustration and fear in the narcissist because you are threatening the stability of his internal world. The narcissist is trapped inside his mind. And in this landscape, there are hundreds of internal objects, all of them idealized, all of them static, and the narcissist interacts with these objects. If you were to challenge one of these objects, it's like a house of cards, the whole thing will fall apart. So then the narcissist begins to regard you as a threat. The more you deviate from the internal object, the more you undermine the internal object, the more you challenge the introject, the less idealized you are in reality, the more threatening you are, the more minacious you are to the narcissist. So you'll be, you're becoming the enemy. You're an enemy. And this is called persecutory object. You're becoming a persecutory object. You persecute him. You, you challenge him all the time. You, so gradually he begins, begins to hate your guts. And you are never capable to fully conform to the internal object. It's impossible. So it's inevitable. Devaluation is inevitable. Yeah, no exception, because there's always an idealized snapshot, idealized photograph of you, and you can never measure up to it. You can never conform to it. Because you're alive. You're alive. You're changing, making decisions. So you can never conform to it. So there's always this clash. You begin to represent eternal conflict. Dissonance, clinical term is dissonance. You create dissonance. So narcissist begins to hate you. The narcissist has a second reason, second very powerful reason to devalue you. The, na the narcissist converts you into a maternal figure. You become his mother. The same way he becomes your mother, you become his mother. And this is the dual mothership principle. So you become his mother. From now on, you are his mother. The narcissist wants to separate from you and individuate. Children between the ages of 18 months and 36 months separate from mommy. They say goodbye to mother and they explore the world. This process is known as separation, individuation, becoming an individual. The narcissist, the borderline and so on, they never succeed to separate from mommy because the mother did not allow them to separate for a variety of reasons. She was a bad mother, a dead mother. She didn't allow them to separate. So the narcissist reenacts this incomplete separation. He says, oh, I found a new mummy. Maybe now I can separate, finally. Maybe now I'm going to get it right. I failed with my original mother, failed to separate from her. Maybe now I'll succeed to separate from her. So he needs to devalue you also for this reason. The narcissist has two powerful motivations to devalue. First of all, you keep frustrating him by deviating from the idealized snapshot, internal object. And second reason, you're his mother and he needs to say goodbye to you in order to take on the world and become an individual. So devaluation is inevitable. There's nothing you could do about it. And there's nothing you have done to, to make it happen. It's nothing to do with you. Why, why that disattachment to the maternal figure is is more important emotionally, psychologically, or 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 otherwise than the continuation of the loving feeling or being in a relationship where they feel because I, I've seen that a lot. I think a lot of victim anger stems 
from that the victim wants desperately to give love they, and they desperately want to be loved. And you already explained portion one that they won't truly be loved authentically because it is it is a snapshot image. But as far as longevity and commitment, I think a lot of victims, they try harder. They try harder and harder to please them so that they'll stay not understanding why that cycle of separation is more important than the commitment, than the want to be loved. There's a lot of grandiosity in the, in the victim's uh, attitude and behavior. First of all, the, victims believe, the victim believes that she has power over the situation. It's like, it's up to me. It's up to me. I'm in control. If I put additional effort into it, it's going to change the whole, the whole situation. That is, of course, a grandiose self-delusion. Uh, it's a bit like I'm godlike. I I can change these dynamics and make them different and, and so on. Second thing, victims want to feel special. They want to feel that they have been chosen by the narcissist. They want to feel that they're unique. And the truth is, that at least as far as the narcissist is concerned, because the narcissist interacts only with internal objects, who you are is utterly besides the point. You are replaceable, interchangeable. You're an excuse. You're a trigger. You're a nobody. You're nothing. You're fungible. This is something victims cannot countenance. They cannot accept this. It demolishes them. I think this is the worst aspect of being the victim of a narcissist having realized how insignificant you were, you were the narcissist's insignificant other, not significant other. And this insignificance challenges the victim into a narcissistic defense, a grandiose defense. So the narcissist says, it's not true that I, I was not special to him. I'm, I'm a very special person. I have enormous empathy, I'm compassionate, I'm amazing, I'm beautiful, I'm this, I'm that. These are grandiose narcissistic defenses. This is the vector of contagion of narcissism. Narcissism is infectious. You spend enough time with a narcissist, you do become narcissistic. Defensively, this is reactive narcissism. You to defend yourself from further pain and further hurt, and further humiliation and so on, you then have to deceive yourself into believing that you are, for example, invulnerable, that you maybe are omnipotent, you don't care, or maybe you are super special or, you know, super galactic empath and so on and so forth. And some victims remain stuck. They develop narcissistic and even psychopathic behaviors and traits. So most victims suffer CPTSD, suffer from complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So victims become narcissists and psychopaths and borderlines just by being exposed to narcissists, borderlines and psychopaths. It's defensive, it's reactive, but it could be, you know, a long-term thing, long-term issue. For example, for example, most victims have a severely diminished capacity for empathy. 
inability to trust other people, so they become paranoid. Emotional dysregulation, I mentioned, they're overwhelmed by emotions. Uh, mood lability, ups and downs in terms of mood. These are all features of cluster B, and yet we find them among victims, among all victims, actually. Another, another issue that I find to be prevalent among those trying to recover after the discard phase in the relationship cycle is that they want, I think they want to forgive the cluster B and they also want to forgive themselves because there is a self guilt dynamic as far as wondering why they didn't leave, why they, why they were so bonded. Wonder what your personal take is on the approach of forgiveness. If it's possible to forgive without an apology, why cluster bees have a hard time with self-reflection to apologize? No, cluster bees, cluster bee personalities by definition um, are divorced from who they are and they're divorced from reality. They, in the case of narcissists, they have a grandiose, inflated, fantastic self-image, which they need to protect against all countervailing information. Apologizing is admitting to an error, to a mistake. Apologizing is admitting to admitting to having done wrong. Apologizing is admitting to having been imperfect. So that undermines the narcissist's grandiose self-perception and is very unlikely. There is no place for apology because all these personalities create narratives, self-justifying narratives, and they have alloplastic defenses. They blame others for their, for their own misbehavior and bad decisions and failures and defeats, and including the disintegration of their relationships. It's everyone's fault except theirs. And this is what many victims do. And that's another example of contagion, another example of, of how narcissism spreads. Victims adopt the same position. It's not my fault. I had nothing to do with it. I was an angelic victim. I'm perfect. I'm immaculate and so on and so forth. That's a narcissistic position. And so there's no place for apology. Forgiveness is, forgiveness has two components. One component is self-directed and the other component is other directed. To forgive others is much easier than to forgive oneself and often accomplished. We move on, the vast majority of us move on and we learn to forgive, not in the active sense, like I understand you, my heart goes out to you, I pity you, I have mercy on you and so I forgive you. No, that's not typical, typical forgiveness. Typical forgiveness is to say, I've moved on and you're no longer important in my life. You're no longer meaningful. You are not a carrier of meaning. You're insignificant. So this is other forgiveness. And because you're insignificant, I don't want revenge. I don't want justice restored. I don't want any of this. I don't want anything further to do with you, period. You're insignificant. So that's, that is what we mean when we say forgiving others, <laughs> effectively. It is almost impossible to forgive oneself if one has elevated grandiose narcissistic defenses. So when it when we can't forgive ourselves, 
is because we impose impossible, unrealistic demands and expectations on ourselves. We say we, we are actually being narcissistic. We're saying we are special, we are unique, we are super handsome, we are amazingly intelligent. So, so how come did this happen? How did I allow this to happen? It's a challenge to this self-image of fantastic perfection. That's why self-forgiveness is very difficult. Because to, to forgive yourself, you need to admit your flaws, your shortcomings, your, your disabilities, your brokenness, your vulnerabilities. You need to admit to all these things. You need to admit that you're less than perfect. And those who are capable of doing it, heal. That's healing. Healing is this dual forgiveness. Rendering your abuser insignificant and rendering yourself less than perfect. If you're capable of these two feats, of these two accomplishments, then you're capable of healing. When I sat down to interview Macy, I was reminded of her bravery and her strength. I've seen Macy overcome the torment and heartbreak from narcissistic abuse, but I've also seen her forgive and overcome such sadness and fear to persevere and rise above the ashes, despite being hurt over and over again. She calls those who can recognize and change from the narcissism heroes, because they are. Like she said in episode one, healing comes from within. She fell, she crashed, she broke, she cried, she crawled, she hurt, she surrendered, and then she rose again. A very special thank you to Sam Backman, and you can find his incredible book, Malignant Self-Love, Narcissism Revisited on Amazon. Thank you, Andrew Jensen from Red Grass Co. for all your hard work with this podcast. If you would like to be considered on the podcast to share your story or to come on with your invaluable insight, email us at Macy at the Phoenix Rising Podcast.com or Becky at the Phoenix Rising Podcast.com. We are not licensed professionals or therapists, and we are not attempting to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure. This podcast is strictly our experiences and opinions only.